Chapter Three of Nomads of the North. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Nomads of the North by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Three. As they stood in the warm sunshine of this first day of June, watching the last of Makoos as he fled across the creek bottom, Neewa felt very much like an old and seasoned warrior instead of a pot-bellied, round-faced cub of four months who weighed nine pounds and not four hundred. It was many minutes after Neewa had sunk his ferocious little teeth deep into the tenderest part of the old he-bear's toe before Nuzak could get her wind sufficiently to grunt. Her sides were pumping like a pair of bellows, and after Makoos had disappeared beyond the creek, Neewa sat down on his chubby bottom perked his funny ears forward, and eyed his mother with round and glistening eyes that were filled with uneasy speculation. With a wheezing groan, Nuzak turned and made her way slowly toward the big rock alongside which she had been sleeping when Neewa's fearful cries for help had awakened her. Every bone in her aged body seemed broken or dislocated. She limped and sagged and moaned as she walked, and behind her were left little red trails of blood in the green grass. Makoos had given her a fine pummeling. She lay down, gave a final groan, and looked at Neewa as if to say, "'If you hadn't gone off on some deviltry and upset that old viper's temper, this wouldn't have happened. And now, look at me!' A young bear would have rallied quickly from the effects of the battle, but Nuzak lay without moving all the rest of that afternoon, and the night that followed. And that night was by all odds the finest that Neewa had ever seen. Now that the nights were warm, he had come to love the moon even more than the sun, for by birth and instinct he was more a prowler in darkness than a hunter of the day. The moon rose out of the east in a glory of golden fire. The spruce and balsam forests stood out like islands in a yellow sea of light, and the creek shimmered and quivered like a living thing as it wound its way through the glowing valley. But Neewa had learned his lesson, and though the moon and the stars called to him, he hung close to his mother, listening to the carnival of night sound that came to him but never moving away from her side. With the morning, Nuzak rose to her feet, and with a grunting command for Neewa to follow, she slowly climbed the sun-capped ridge. She was in no mood for travel, but away back in her head was an unexpressed fear that villainous old Makoos might return, and she knew that another fight would do her up entirely, in which event Makoos would make a breakfast of Neewa. So she urged herself down the other side of the ridge, across a new valley, and through a cut that opened like a wide door into a rolling plain that was made up of meadows and lakes and great sweeps of spruce and cedar forest. For a week Nuzak had been making for a certain creek in this plain, and now that the presence of Makoos threatened behind, she kept at her journeying until Neewa's short, fat legs could scarcely hold up his body. 
It was mid-afternoon when they reached the creek, and Neewa was so exhausted that he had difficulty in climbing the spruce up which his mother sent him to take a nap. Finding a comfortable crotch, he quickly fell asleep, while Noozak went fishing. The creek was alive with suckers, trapped in the shallow pools after spawning, and within an hour she had the shore strewn with them. When Neewa came down out of his cradle, just at the edge of dusk, it was to a feast at which Noozak had already stuffed herself until she looked like a barrel. This was his first meal of fish, and for a week thereafter he lived in a paradise of fish. He ate them morning, noon, and night, and when he was too full to eat, he rolled in them. And Noozak stuffed herself until it seemed her hide would burst. Wherever they moved, they carried with them a fishy smell that grew older day by day, and the older it became, the more delicious it was to Neewa and his mother. And Neewa grew like a swelling pod. In that week he gained three pounds. He had given up nursing entirely now, for Noozak, being an old bear, had dried up to a point where she was hopelessly disappointing. It was early in the evening of the eighth day that Neewa and his mother lay down on the edge of a grassy knoll to sleep after their day's feasting. Noozak was by all odds the happiest old bear in all that part of the Northland. Food was no longer a problem for her. In the creek, penned up in the pools, were unlimited quantities of it, and she had encountered no other bear to challenge her possession of it. She looked ahead to uninterrupted bliss in their happy hunting grounds, until midsummer storms emptied the pools, or the berries ripened. And Neewa, a happy little gourmand, dreamed with her. It was this day, just as the sun was setting, that a man on his hands and knees was examining a damp patch of sand five or six miles down the creek. His sleeves were rolled up, bearing his brown arms halfway to the shoulders, and he wore no hat, so that the evening breeze ruffled a ragged head of blond hair that for a matter of eight or nine months had been cut with a hunting knife. Close on one side of this individual was a tin pail, and on the other, eyeing him with the keenest interest, one of the homeliest and yet one of the most companionable-looking dog pups ever born of a Mackenzie hound father and a mother half Airedale and half Spitz. With this tragedy of blood in his veins, nothing in the world could have made the pup anything more than just dog. His tail, stretched out straight on the sand, was long and lean, with a knot at every joint. His paws, like an overgrown boy's feet, looked like small boxing gloves. His head was three sizes too big for his body, and accident had assisted nature in the perfection of her masterpiece by robbing him of a half of one of his ears. As he watched his master, this half of an ear stood up like a galvanized stub, while the other, twice as long, was perked forward in the deepest and most interested inquiry. Head, feet, and tail were Mackenzie hound, but the ears and his lank, skinny body 
was a battle royal between Spitz and Airedale. At his present inharmonious stage of development, he was the doggiest dog pup outside the alleys of a big city. For the first time in several minutes, his master spoke, and Mickey wiggled from stem to stern in appreciation of the fact that it was directly to him the words were uttered. "'It's a mother and a cub, as sure as you're a week old, Mickey,' he said. "'And if I know anything about bears, they were here sometime today.' He rose to his feet, made note of the deepening shadows in the edge of the timber, and filled his pail with water. For a few moments, the last rays of the sun lit up his face. It was a strong, hopeful face. In it was the joy of life. And now it was lighted up with a sudden inspiration, and a glow that was not of the forest alone came into his eyes as he added, "'Mickey, I'm lugging your homely carcass down to the girl, because you're an unpolished gem of good nature and beauty.' and for those two things I know she'll love you. She is my sister, you know. Now, if I could only take that cub along with you. He began to whistle as he turned with his pail of water in the direction of a thin fringe of balsams a hundred yards away. Close at his heels followed Mickey. Chalonnet, who was a newly appointed factor of the Great Hudson's Bay Company, had pitched his camp at the edge of the lake, close to the mouth of the creek. There was not much to it, a battered tent, a still more battered canoe, and a small pile of dunnage. But in the last glow of the sunset it would have spoken volumes to a man with an eye trained to the wear and the turmoil of the forests. It was the outfit of a man who had gone unfearing to the rough edge of the world. And now what was left of it was returning with him. To Chalonnet there was something of human comradeship in these remnants of things that had gone through the greater part of a year's fight with him. The canoe was warped and battered and patched. Smoke and storm had blackened his tent until it was the color of rusty char, and his grub sacks were next to empty. Over a small fire, little contents of a pan and a pot were brewing when he returned with Mickey at his heels, and close to the heat was a battered and mended reflector in which a bannock of flour and water was beginning to brown. In one of the pots was coffee, in the other a boiling fish. Mickey sat down on his angular haunches so that the odor of the fish filled his nostrils. This, he had discovered, was the next thing to eating. His eyes, as they followed Chalonnet's final preparatory movements, were as bright as garnets, and every third or fourth breath he licked his chops and swallowed hungrily. That, in fact, was why Mickey had got his name. He was always hungry, and apparently always empty, no matter how much he ate. Therefore his name, Mickey, the Drum. It was not until they had eaten the fish and the bannock, and Chalonnet had lighted his pipe, that he spoke what was in his mind. "'Tomorrow I'm going after that bear,' he said. Mickey, curled up near the dying embers, 
gave his tail a club-like thump in evidence of the fact that he was listening. "'I'm going to pair you up with the cub and tickle the girl to death.' Mickey thumped his tail harder than before. "'Fine,' he seemed to say. "'Just think of it,' said Chalonnet, looking over Mickey's head a thousand miles away. Fourteen months, and at last we're going home. I'm going to train you and the cub for that sister of mine. Hey, won't you like that? You don't know what she's like, you homely little devil, or you wouldn't sit there staring at me like a totem-pole pup. And it isn't in your stupid head to imagine how pretty she is. You saw that sunset tonight? Well, she's prettier than that, if she is my sister. Got anything to add to that, Mickey? If not, let's say our prayers and go to bed. Chalonnet rose and stretched himself. His muscles cracked. He felt life surging like a giant within him. And Mickey, thumping his tail until this moment, rose on his overgrown legs and followed his master into their shelter. It was the gray light of the early summer dawn when Chalonnet came forth again and rekindled the fire. Mickey followed a few moments later, and his master fastened the end of a worn tent rope around his neck and tied the rope to a sapling. Another rope of similar length Chalonnet tied to the corners of a grub sack so that it could be carried over his shoulder like a game bag. With the first rose flush of the sun, he was ready for the trail of Neewa and his mother. Mickey set up a melancholy wailing when he found himself left behind, and when Chalonnet looked back, the pup was tugging and somersaulting at the end of his rope like a jumping jack. For a quarter of a mile up the creek, he could hear Mickey's entreating protest. To Chalonnet, the business of the day was not a matter of personal pleasure, nor was it inspired alone by his desire to possess a cub along with Mickey. He needed meat, and bear pork thus early in the season would be exceedingly good, and above all else he needed a supply of fat. If he bagged this bear, time would be saved all the rest of the way down to civilization. It was eight o'clock when he struck the first unmistakably fresh signs of Nuzak and Neewa. It was at the point where Nuzak had fished four or five days previously, and where they had returned yesterday to feast on the ripened catch. Chalonnet was elated. He was sure that he would find the pair along the creek, and not far distant. The wind was in his favor and he began to advance with greater caution, his rifle ready for the anticipated moment. For an hour he traveled steadily and quietly, marking every sound and movement ahead of him, and wetting his finger now and then to see if the wind had shifted. After all, it was not so much a matter of human cunning. Everything was in Chalonnet's favor. In a wide, flat part of the valley, where the creek split itself into a dozen little channels, and the water rippled between sandy bars and over pebbly shallows, Neewa and his mother were nosing about lazily for a breakfast of crawfish. The world had never looked more beautiful to Neewa. 
the sun made the soft hair on his back fluff up like that of a purring cat he liked the plash of wet sand under his feet and the singing gush of water against his legs he liked the sound that was all about him the breath of the wind the whispers that came out of the spruce tops and the cedars the murmur of water the twit-twit of the rock rabbits the call of birds and more than all else the low grunting talk of his mother it was in this sunbathed sweep of the valley that noozak caught the first whiff of danger it came to her in a sudden twist of the wind the smell of man instantly she was turned into rock there was still the deep scar in her shoulder which had come years before with that same smell of the one enemy she feared for three summers she had not caught the taint in her nostrils and she had almost forgotten its existence now so suddenly that it paralyzed her it was warm and terrible in the breath of the wind in this moment too neewa seemed to sense the nearness of an appalling danger two hundred yards from chalonnet he stood a motionless blotch of jet against the white of the sand about him his eyes on his mother and his sensitive little nose trying to catch the meaning of the menace in the air then came a thing he had never heard before a splitting crackling roar something that was almost like thunder and yet unlike it and he saw his mother lurch where she stood and crumpled down all at once on her forelegs the next moment she was up with the wild woof in her voice that was new to him a warning for him to fly for his life like all mothers who have known the comradeship and love of a child Nuzak's first thought was of him reaching out a paw she gave him a sudden shove and neewa legged it wildly for the nearby shelter of the timber Nuzak followed a second shot came and close over her head there sped a spurring terrible sound but Nuzak did not hurry she kept behind neewa urging him on even as that pain of a red-hot iron in her groin filled her with agony they came to the edge of the timber as Chalonnet's third shot bit under Nuzak's feet. A moment more, and they were within the barricade of the timber. Instinct guided Neewa into the thickest part of it, and close behind him Nuzak fought with the last of her dying strength to urge him on. In her old brain there was growing a deep and appalling shadow something that was beginning to cloud her vision so that she could not see and she knew that at last she had come to the uttermost end of her trail with twenty years of life behind her she struggled now for a last few seconds she stopped neewa close to a thick cedar and as she had done many times before she commanded him to climb it just once her hot tongue touched his face in a final caress then she turned to fight her last great fight straight into the face of chalonnet she dragged herself and fifty feet from the spruce she stopped and waited for him her head drooped between her shoulders her sides heaving her eyes dimming more and more 
until at last she sank down with a great sigh, barring the trail of their enemy. For a space, it may be, she saw once more the golden moons and the blazing suns of those twenty years that were gone. It may be that the soft, sweet music of spring came to her again, filled with the old, old song of life, and that something gracious and painless descended upon her as a final reward for a glorious motherhood on earth. When Chalonnet came up, she was dead. From his hiding place in a crotch of the spruce, Neewa looked down on the first great tragedy of his life and the advent of man. The two-legged beast made him cringe deeper into his refuge, and his little heart was near breaking with the terror that had seized upon him. He did not reason. It was by no miracle of mental process that he knew something terrible had happened and that this tall, two-legged creature was the cause of it. His little eyes were blazing, just over the level of the crotch. He wondered why his mother did not get up and fight when this new enemy came. Frightened as he was, he was ready to snarl if she would only wake up, ready to run down the tree and help her, as he had helped her in the defeat of Makoos, the old he-bear but not a muscle of Nuzak's huge body moved as Chalonnet bent over her. She was stone dead. Chalonnet's face was flushed with exultation. Necessity had made of him a killer. He saw in Nuzak a splendid pelt, and a provision of meat that would carry him all the rest of the way to the Southland. He leaned his rifle against a tree and began looking about for the cub. Knowledge of the wild told him it would not be far from its mother, and he began looking into the trees and the nearby thickets. In the shelter of his crotch, screened by the thick branches, Neewa made himself as small as possible during the search. At the end of half an hour, Chalonnet disappointedly gave up his quest and went back to the creek for a drink before setting himself to the task of skinning Nuzak. No sooner was he gone than Neewa's little head shot up alertly. For a few moments he watched, and then slipped backward down the trunk of the cedar to the ground. He gave his squealing call, but his mother did not move. He went to her and stood beside her motionless head, sniffing the man-tainted air. Then he muzzled her jowl, butted his nose under her neck, and at last nipped her ear, always his last resort in the awakening process. He was puzzled. He whined softly, and climbed upon his mother's big, soft back and sat there. Into his whine there came a strange note, and then out of his throat there rose a whimpering cry that was like the cry of a child. Chalonnet heard that cry as he came back, and something seemed to grip hold of his heart suddenly and choke him. He had heard children crying like that, and it was the motherless cub. Creeping up behind a dwarf spruce, he looked where Nuzak lay dead and saw Neewa perched on his mother's back. He had killed many things in his time, for it was his business to kill, 
and to barter in the pelts of creatures that others had killed. But he had seen nothing like this before, and he felt all at once as if he had done murder. "'I'm sorry,' he breathed softly. "'You poor little devil. I'm sorry.' It was almost a prayer for forgiveness. Yet there was but one thing to do now. So quietly that Neewa failed to hear him, he crept around with the wind and stole up behind. He was within a dozen feet of Neewa before the cub suspected danger. Then it was too late. In a swift rush, Chalonet was upon him, and before Neewa could leave the back of his mother, had smothered him in the folds of the grub sack. In all his life, Chalonet had never experienced a livelier five minutes than the five that followed. Above Neewa's grief and his fear, there rose the savage fighting blood of old Suminitik, his father. He clawed and bit and kicked and snarled. In those five minutes, he was five little devils all rolled into one and by the time Chalonet had the rope fastened about Neewa's neck and his fat body chucked into the sack, his hands were scratched and lacerated in a score of places. In the sack, Neewa continued to fight until he was exhausted, while Chalonet skinned Nuzak and cut from her the meat and fats which he wanted. The beauty of Nuzak's pelt brought a glow into his eyes. In it he rolled the meat and fats, and with babiche thong bound the hole into a pack around which he belted the dunnage ends of his shoulder straps. Weighted under the burden of sixty pounds of pelt and meat, he picked up his rifle and Neewa. It had been early afternoon when he left. It was almost sunset when he reached camp. Every foot of the way, until the last half-mile, Neewa fought like a Spartan. Now he lay limp and almost lifeless in his sack, and when Mickey came up to smell suspiciously of his prison, he made no movement of protest. All smells were alike to him now, and of sounds he made no distinction. Chalonet was nearly done for. Every muscle and bone in his body had its ache, yet in his face, sweaty and grimed, was a grin of pride. "'You plucky little devil,' he said, contemplating the limp sack as he loaded his pipe for the first time that afternoon. "'You, you plucky little devil!' He tied the end of Neewa's rope halter to a sapling and began cautiously to open the grub sack. Then he rolled Neewa out on the ground and stepped back. In that hour Neewa was willing to accept a truce, so far as Chalonet was concerned. But it was not Chalonet that his half-blinded eyes saw first as he rolled from his bag. It was Mickey, and Mickey, his awkward body wriggling with the excitement of his curiosity, was almost on the point of smelling of him. Neewa's little eyes glared. Was that ill-jointed, lop-eared offspring of the man-beast an enemy, too? Were those twisting convolutions of this new creature's body 
and the club-like swing of his tail an invitation to fight? He judged so. Anyway, there was something of his size, and like a flash he was at the end of his rope and on the pup. Mickey, a moment before bubbling over with friendship and good cheer, was on his back in an instant, his grotesque legs paddling the air and his yelping cries for help rising in a wild clamor that filled the golden stillness of the evening with an unutterable woe. Chalonnet stood dumbfounded. In another moment he would have separated the little fighters, but something happened that stopped him. Neewa, standing squarely over Mickey, with Mickey's four overgrown paws held aloft, as if signaling an unqualified surrender, slowly drew his teeth from the pup's loose hide. Again he saw the man-beast. Instinct, keener than a clumsy reasoning, held him for a few moments without movement, his beady eyes on Chalonnet. In mid-air Mickey wagged his paws. He whined softly. His hard tail thumped the ground as he pleaded for mercy, and he licked his chops and tried to wriggle, as if to tell Neewa that he had no intention at all to do him harm. Neewa, facing Chalonnet, snarled defiantly. He drew himself slowly over from Mickey, and Mickey, afraid to move, still lay on his back with his paws in the air. Very slowly, a look of wonder in his face, Chalonnet drew back into the tent and peered through a rent in the canvas. The snarl left Neewa's face. He looked at the pup. Perhaps, away back in some corner of his brain, the heritage of instinct was telling him of what he had lost because of brothers and sisters unborn, the comradeship of babyhood, the play of children. And Mickey must have sensed the change in the furry little black creature who a moment ago was his enemy. His tail thumped almost frantically, and he swung out his front paws toward Neewa. Then, a little fearful of what might happen, he rolled on his side. Still, Neewa did not move. Joyously, Mickey wriggled. A moment later, looking through the slit in the canvas, Chalonnet saw them cautiously smelling noses. End of chapter 3